So Christmas is an interesting time for me as a preacher and as a pastor because I am very aware as I stand here and I share and communicate what I believe as a Christian firstly and as a pastor second, I believe that I do not have to convince you of what it is that I am going to share. What I mean by that is this. I I truly believe that humanity, that just us in our culture, we actually understand and are very aware of everything that I'm going to share with you today. I don't have to convince you about what's going on in the world because you just need to have a, a little look at our community and our culture and our world to know that some of this, what I'm sharing with you today is true. The difference that I get to do as a human and as a pastor is to actually give you what I believe the Bible gives as an answer. I'm just going to move some furniture around while I'm preaching so that, uh, so that you guys can see the screen a little bit better. Let me give you an example. Uh, yesterday morning, uh, Tracy texted uh, uh, Sarah and myself. I don't know if Tracy's here this morning. I know Pete's been a little unwell. So uh, Tracy said, uh, has Luke had uh, his vaccination for the meningitis outbreak that's been going on? And so we ended up going downtown and getting, uh, getting Luke uh, vaccinated, and, uh, which was great. And he's complaining slightly today about a sore arm. Oh, nothing. Um, and, uh, and so I thought, you know, I'll treat him. And on the way back, just before work, I thought, we'll go for breakfast. And so we went to Urban Fair, because uh, I'm classy. Um, I know how to have a good breakfast. And we came out of Urban Fair, and I was just walking towards the car. And I looked around the, the quad area, if you like, of Urban Fair, and all the different decorations that are on top of the building. And it occurred to me, what a strange culture we're in. Because I'm looking at pretty much every decoration, and in some way, I can root them back into the Christmas story. The stars, which has come from the Christmas story. Um, there's, there's presents and the gifts, which has come from the Christmas story. And yet, as a culture, we are adamant that, no, we mustn't call it Christmas, we call it holidays, while at the same time putting everything up on our walls that shouts out Christmas. It makes no sense. That we put up lights. Look at this. Maureen and the soap team have done a wonderful job. Uh, I don't know if Maureen's still in the room, but can we give Maureen a, a clap for this beautiful stage? And uh, tinsel makes me happy because tinsel, as a, a kid being brought up in the 70s and 80s, that just sums up Christmas in Britain. Um, the glitter and everything else, it's wonderful. But the idea of putting up lights you realize that that is a celebration of light coming into darkness, which is ultimately Christmas. But no, we don't celebrate Christmas. Because Christmas offends people while I put my lights up on the wall telling everybody that we're celebrating Christmas. It's really weird for me as a Christian. And I love it because it's the time of year I can walk around the city and go, "Uh, there's Jesus and there's a symbol of Jesus and there's a symbol of Jesus and there's a symbol of Jesus and people are putting up symbols of Jesus and his love everywhere and it's wonderful and so many people just think it's about giving and getting fat and eating turkey where it's not. If you're putting lights up this Christmas, you're celebrating the fact that Jesus came as a baby and the Son of God. You see, light is being celebrated. We love light. We put lights up because ultimately light is a celebration of light coming into darkness. Because here's the reality, and please listen. This is where I don't have to convince you because we know it's true. 
that every one of us is looking for some kind of light in some kind of darkness. That our world is a dark place to live. It is. We do a great job of layering up kind of different things to, to pretend that it's not as dark as it is, but it really is a dark place. And we're searching for light. We're searching for something that will make a difference. And you could go, well, you know, well, that's just the world. Well, let, let's just think about you for a second. Each one of us in some way is struggling with something that we are trying to find an answer in. We think that if we get more of what we've already got, then somehow we'll find the happiness that we're lacking. Think about it. Well, I'll get more and I'll get better of what I already have in the hope that I'll find the peace and joy that I don't actually already feel. So I'll get a different job, and that different job will give me the fulfillment that I know that I'm actually lacking. Or I'll get a different car, or I'll get a different house, or I'll get different cushions on my couch, or I'll get a different uh, partner, or I'll get a different location. I'll go somewhere in the hope that I will find the joy and the happiness that I know that I'm lacking. I'm going to find it there, only to find that when we get there, we might have more money in our pockets and better six-packs, but still not finding the joy and the fulfillment that we know that we're lacking. We just end up with more stuff. So where's the answer in this? See, today's message is very much a Christmas message, and I'm going to be, uh, going to be reading to you in a second a classic Christmas passage But I want you to understand that the underlying message of this is what do we do with the lack that we all feel? Where do we find the answer in that? And Christmas is the answer. And we're going to track back and I'm going to explain to you how that is the case. So let's uh, let's start with Isaiah chapter 9. And if one of my wonderful family could find me a bottle of water or something, that would be lovely. Thanks, babe. Um, Isaiah chapter 9, and this is a classic Christmas passage. So let's, uh, let's get reading. Um, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. I'll explain all this in a second. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he had made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Okay, not very Christmassy so far. All right, let's keep going. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has a light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. How Christmassy are you all feeling right now? Okay, but wait, next verse. For to us a child is born. Thank you. Ah, now we're getting Christmassy. Because we recognize this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. So let's just pause there for a second. You see this on classic, beautiful Christian Christmas cards. Verse 5, not so much. You know, and I challenge you, please write on the bottom of your Christmas card. If you really want to throw your Christmas friends off, put Isaiah chapter 9 verse 5 just underneath your name. And they'll look it up and they'll go, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult garments rolled in blood. They're mad. But actually you can't have 
Verse 6, without verse 5. We'll come to that in a minute. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So here's one of the reasons I love my job. Is all I do is I explain what the Bible is saying. I try and do it in a way that is relevant to our culture. But all I'm going to do is tell you what the Bible says. This is not theory of Glenn. This is what this scripture is sharing. And what you'll find as we jump into this scripture, you're going to see the real reason that we celebrate Christmas. And you're going to find an answer for the hope that we are desperately trying to look for and seeking in places that ultimately con us into thinking that we're going to find it there, ultimately to find we're not. So, I'm going to do it by filling in three gaps. Okay, hopefully this will appear uh, as planned. There we go, three gaps. I love the fact that I have to press this like 12 times in order for it to appear. It reminds me of home. It's it's, it's great. Okay, so here's, here's, here's what my points are going to look like. Okay, three spaces, three gaps. And the first one is this. Two, three, four. Um, Number one, (laughs) the unexpected. The unexpected something is something. The unexpected. Verse one says this. Oh, gosh. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he had made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. Okay, so here's what's going on here. God, through his prophet Isaiah, is telling what is really a broken world at that point. The first few chapters of Isaiah are are just, it's not uplifting. It's not a good picture. And so what God is saying, but listen, there's a time coming. And, and he's, he's explaining the gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea. When then he tells them where this glory is going to come. So just stick, stick with me because this is important. He's going to tell us that this glorious time is going to come in this place called Galilee. Now then. Galilee, in our minds, is a place that we actually have this kind of romantic feeling around. Because Galilee is what we celebrate when it comes to Christmas. Bethlehem and and Nazareth. These are all kind of beautiful imagery because we think about Christmas trees and we think about lights and we think about Jesus and the cute manger. But you need to understand, in their time, when they heard this, they would have gone, Galilee? You're going to do something in Galilee that's glorious. Why would you do that? Jerusalem, maybe. But Galilee, they would have gone, oh, really? So I was starting to think of places in Canada that I could kind of connect with this idea, this image of Galilee that they would have had. And then I decided, no, I'm not going to do that because then I'll get emails. Because if I start pointing out places in Canada, then somebody is going to go, I'm from there, and it's really great, even though right now it's probably minus 75 and, you know, bones are breaking just because they're going outside, you know, that, and so I'm not going to criticize anything in Canada. What I'm going to focus on is Britain, because I am Canadian and I'm also British, so I had the joy as a young man, as a child, of growing up in this city called Chester. 
Okay. Now, I know this looks like I've just kind of put this together. This doesn't look really. Actually, as you can see, Carphone Warehouse on the side there is one of the shops. This is downtown Chester. How many of you have ever been to Chester? Okay, it looks like that, right? Thank you. Yes, it does. So I walked along, literally walked along this high street to go to school, especially if I missed the bus. And one of the places I would walk along is, uh, is this place. Come on, Lord. Okay, Norm, you know what? I'm just going to point. Can you click when I point? That would be great. So I actually walked along these walls. These walls surround Chester, and they were built in the 12th century. The foundation of them then finished off in the Tudor times. And, and so you can see, this is pretty impressive. I walked along to school along these walls. Chester is a beautiful, beautiful city. Then God, in his wisdom, after we got married, called us to this place. Thanks, Norm. It's real. I present to you... Galilee. I present to you a place where people would have gone, really? Real? God's going to do something glorious in real? And in case you think this is the town sin, so let's go back to Norm. Let's just remind ourselves what Chester looks like. So Chester, Jerusalem. Yes, I can see why you would want to do something here. But then let's go back to real. Real. Notice how many for sale signs there are. But, you know, it gets brighter because the next slide... Thank you, Norm. Mmm. The stuff of nightmares. Real funfair. I don't know who Les is on the side there, but if he is... Uh, you have to apologize for the projector, by the way. We're actually getting a new projector. This one is slowly, slowly dying on us. But yes, you can see my point. Look at the funfair in the distance. It's beautiful. So here's, here's my point. God chose a place that no one else was going to choose to do something unexpected. He chose an unexpected place to bring glory. But it doesn't finish there because not only did he choose the back end of the back end of the back end, he actually said, I'm going to do it through a teenage girl called Mary. She's not going to be married, which in this culture is no big deal. Happens all the time. But you need to understand, in that culture, for a teenage unmarried girl to get uh, pregnant was the height of scandal. She would have been ostracized for the rest of her life. And God said, I'm going to choose her. And my son, Jesus, is going to be born in a cave, basically, in a feeding trough. So let's get the nice pictorial kind of imagery out of our minds as to this beautiful Christmas card scene. It was a place where uh, last Monday, Phil, myself, and uh, Pastor Jordan mucked out the area where the animals were kept for living nativity. That was our job. We got rid of it all. And that's something I used to spend a lot of my teenage years doing, looking after horses. There's nothing pleasant about an area like that, let alone put a child in it. God chose to do something glorious in an unexpected way, in an unexpected place. Why would he do this? Why would he choose a place that has no consequence? And in poverty, the richest person that has ever lived, not materially, but in in life, why would he choose a cave in real equivalent of? Why would he do that? See, God loves to use and to bring richness, strength, and change in unexpected ways. Thanks, Norm. 
Down again. God loves to use the unexpected. He loves to bring richness and strength and change in unexpected ways. You see, the Bible is filled with examples of God using the foolish things to bring about great things. So what has this got to do with us in our culture? You see, God loves to bring his light in ways that we find unexpected. Because I don't know about you, I look at our culture and it worries me. It worries me what's going on. It worries me the trajectory we seem to be in. But I can be secure in the knowledge that God thrives in the impossible. That God loves to use the unexpected. It might be that right now you are going through something in your life where you go, I cannot see God in this at all. I feel insignificant. This situation is too significant. And I don't know how I'm going to cope. And you see, God speaks into that and says, great, I've got you exactly where I need you. Because as soon as we lose confidence in ourselves, that's where God seems to thrive in our lives. When we think that we can actually do it, it seems like we're pushing God out into the edges of our lives. God loves to use the unexpected to bring glory. And my, my joy is this, is to be able to communicate to you, even if you are feeling like real. And I know this probably is going to go on video, and I might get some criticism from people in real, probably my mother-in-law um, who, who lives there. But your life might be feeling like Galilee. You might be feeling like the sort of stuff you find in a trough. You might be feeling, man, I just seem to be like a million miles away from where I feel like I've been put on this earth to do. God will speak and whisper into that. Now you're ready. So secondly, the unexpected light. The unexpected light. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. There's this incredible phrase in here, in the original language in Hebrew, that surrounds this deep darkness. Deep darkness literally means, in the translation, it means death shadow. It means death shadow. So we could translate this verse in this way. On those living in the death shadow, a light has shone. Wow. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a place where, you, uh, where it's so dark, you can't literally see the hand in front of your face. I've told a story before of a time when that happened to me in the middle of a caving expedition as a, a trainee uh, a school administrator, they did this management thing and thought it would be fun to throw us into the middle of caves and then switch the lights off. I'd never, I'd never been in a place where I couldn't see my hand. I might as well just close my eyes because it was so dark. But you see, that is different. That feeling that we have in darkness is different from this idea of death shadow. Just feel it in your mind's eye for a second, the idea of darkness and then the feeling of death shadow. I mean, that sounds like a character of Harry Potter, I'll give you that. But, God is saying, there's a death shadow and I'm bringing in light. You see, as as a culture, and as a world, I know this doesn't sound very Christmassy, but I want to tell you the truth, because I believe, this is why I said at the beginning, I don't have to convince you of this, is that we truly do live in a death shadow. In Kelowna, and um, there are people in our congregation and our church who actually work very 
intimately with families who are going through situations like this. In Kelowna, there has never been an epidemic like this right now. And I'm not talking about meningitis. I'm talking about suicide in youth and young adults. There are young adults dying, it seems like on a weekly basis. And these aren't kids who were born into poverty. These are kids who were going to OKM, who were driving around in BMWs. There's this death shadow upon our culture. Now, as a Christian, I believe there's been three times historically, it seems, where, where a, a, an enemy, Satan, I believe, is, is just trying to wipe out a generation. The first one is in the Moses time. The second one was is in the Jesus time. And I believe the third time, there's never been a time like this where so many youth, young adults, and children are dying. Now you go, Glenn, let's just get back to the light and tinsel. But the reality is, there's no reason for the light and tinsel unless we recognize that we actually live in this death shadow. And as Christians, Christian brothers and sisters, I've been in this church now for, for seven years, and you know my heart, until we realize and we take off our blinders and realize the severity of the situation we're in in our community, that we actually have living in us this unexpected light that this culture desperately needs because I'm telling you, no amount of politics, social justice, money, good causes, food banks, and anything else that is wonderful that is going on in our community is actually going to save the lives of the people who are dying in our culture. There's a death shadow. And what do we do about it? Well, maybe if we got rid of Justin Trudeau. Yeah, that'll work. We know it won't. Well, yeah, I'm going to tweet about President Trump. Yeah, yeah, that'll work. And it doesn't. Well, there's some horror that happens in the world, and our only response is to do a thumbs up on Facebook, and we think somehow that we've contributed to the answer, and we haven't. Because the problem is so severe in our culture, it takes something of equal magnitude to actually displace it and do away with it. And we have been trying for millennia. We have this incredible, arrogant idea as a culture that nobody has ever been as intelligent or smart as us. That's why young people look at their mums and dads and go, you know, they really haven't got a clue. And we did the same thing with our mums and dads. And then we go back 500 years and we go, man, those 500-year-olds, they got no idea. We, we really are the pinnacle of intelligence and the reality is this, we're not. Because for millennia, cultures have been trying to find their way out of this death shadow. As part of my job, I have... Um, you know, I want to say it's a joy, it's a privilege, and it is. But it's also deeply sad that I am often called into situations that involve somebody dying. Or somebody about to die, or somebody who has died. And in my 20-some years of ministry, full-time, part-time, you know, I've been at the bedside of tiny little ones and the people who have lived long and beautiful lives and everything in between. Suicides, surprises, long-term diseases, just a whole myriad of different reasons why people pass away. And every time... I always think to myself, there's a better way. And what I mean by that is this, is we know that death somehow, this death shadow, 
is not the way things have been created to be. There's, a, there's an unnatural aspect to death. And we'll go, oh, it's a natural part of life. And yeah, but it's not the way God created it to be because it somehow doesn't feel right. We know that there's something better. We know that we've been created for something better. I, uh, in, in, in just connection again to, to being in, in Britain, one of the things, there was lots of cultural shocks for Sarah and I and the family when we came over to Canada. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, and I've shared some of them before. And, and it took us a few years to kind of get rid, get, get rid, didn't get rid of our British culture. We, we kind of certainly didn't get rid of it, but kind of get used to the Canadian culture. There was lots of differences. And one thing that I have yet to get rid of, to adapt to, to understand, uh, and I know that when I share this, this is possibly one of the most dangerous things that I've ever shared from this pulpit. I, I, I still, there's, there's just something part of the Canadian culture that isn't natural, that we weren't created for, that I cannot wrap my head around, and yet it is so intricately part of the fabric of Canadian culture. This is why it's really dangerous for me to even, even approach this topic, but it, it's true, and, and I believe we've been created for something different, and I can't understand the whole idea of ice skating. Like, I, I, now we, we need to talk about this. Because the idea of strapping blades onto our feet, because, you know, if you go onto ice then, then, and with blades, there's this kind of, uh, it doesn't, st- when you fall, if I fall now, I fall and I get up. But not on ice. Because you fall, that's just the first part of your experience, because then you splay out and you slide. And you slide amongst teenagers that have got blades strapped to their feet, There's nothing natural about that. Now, I know that some of you are already going, I'm not going to listen to anything else this guy's saying. I'm not criticizing hockey. Okay? And the reason is for this, because I've been down to the ice rink in town, and I've watched with some joy grown men sliding around this ice with their hockey gear on, practically on their feet, with just kind of going in one direction, and for no reason at all. Flicking and going around. And they're just basically saying, hey, look at me. Look at how cool I am. And then there's me. That the only way that I can actually get around is by moving my feet back and forth like this. There's, on a cool factor of zero to ten, I'll let you decide whereabouts I am. There's, there's nothing cool about it. But one thing that I have experienced on ice is this. Is when you fall, you feel yourself falling, you're... Not, you're you see, really what you should do is just go, you know what, I'm just going to hit the ground and I'm just going to slide and let's get this over and done with and hopefully I'll stand up with fingers even though there's kids with blades sliding around. But my brain says, no, you know what? You know what, I, 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 can, I, can, uh, I can outrun this. That's what my brain says. So I feel myself falling and my legs start running. And then the inevitable happens, and I slap and I hit. And so this is why I'm quite happy to come and watch, but I will not come and experience. I'll come and laugh at, but I won't experience because I cannot outrun the fall. It's not natural. I don't believe skating is natural. I wasn't born with ice skates on my feet, so let's just avoid the ice. And I know know the emails are going to come, and that's fine. Because I think we've been created for something better.
we can't outrun this life. You can't. We think we can, but we can't. We can't outrun what's going on. We're going to trip, and it's going to be nasty, and maybe we've already tripped, and we're already sliding. But we, we have this idea that we can outrun what's going on inside our hearts. That somehow if I can run towards something else, I'm going to find my answer there. I'm going to get a different job. Or I'm going to go to a different place. Or I'm going to get a different partner. Or I'm going to, you know, or I'm going to get a different car. Or I'm going to get a better mobile phone or whatever it is. If I can just get there, I can outrun this. And what actually happens is we just start kicking our legs around and we don't go anywhere. We've been created for something more glorious, something more beautiful, something far better than this. We've been created for living in the light. And the only way that this darkness is ever going to get replaced is by not increasing the darkness and increasing the stuff, but actually replacing it with light, which is why it says in verse 2, there's going to be a light that shines on those who are in the deep darkness. We need that light. Light is a life giver. We need light. And the Bible says God is going to give us this light. So for those who might be in the room who are a little skeptical and go, really? Here's what I want you to think about. Just Just feel the inside of yourself for a second. In the depths of your heart, when everything else is switched off and the lights go off at night and it's just you and your thoughts, you know what I'm saying is true. You know that that which you are reaching for is not going to give you that which you are truly longing for. It won't and you know it. You know it. And so I can stand here with confidence and say, here's the true light, and his name is Jesus. And the reason I can say that is because the room is filled with people who can say, here's how it was, and this is now how it is. My life was completely transformed and changed. I got a new horizon. I got a new uh, focus. I got a new fulfillment. And that which I was trying to outrun, the shame that I was feeling, the challenge that I was feeling, the lack of peace that I was experiencing, that which I was trying to run out, my legs going like this, suddenly I gained traction and I found hope and I found an answer. You see, how does this all happen? How does this happen? There's a scripture here. For to us a child is born. How is this going to happen? How is this light going to come? How are we going to find this answer? Then the answer is in this verse, in verse 6, for. This little word, for. This light is going to be bound up in this son who's going to be given. The unexpected light birth of Jesus. Fully man, fully God. God becoming human. So here's, here's what I want to say before I get to my last point. You have to make a decision about this. Christian friends, if what I'm saying is true, and if we truly say, yeah, the Bible is right, and even if you are struggling with aspects of the Bible, just again, just, just feel what's going on inside. If, if we believe that there has to be something more, then what I have just said, for unto us a child is born, that the light comes in the form of Jesus, it forces us to make a decision. You see, Jesus himself said, I will cosmically vomit out people 
who are lukewarm. It's almost like he says, I'd rather you be cold than lukewarm. Be on fire or nothing at all. So if we truly believe that he is the light, then this is what has to happen. We therefore then have to believe that in union with Christ, we are one with him. And so this broken and hurting world, we get to go into and he comes in and through us and we can actually bring hope to a dark world. That's our calling. That's our job. That's our mission. If you are struggling with the idea of Christianity and you're not sure whether Jesus is the Son of God, then then let me encourage you with this. What I have said about Jesus being the Son of God also forces you to make a decision. Jesus can't just be liked. You can't just like Jesus. You can't just go, yeah, he had some pretty decent teaching. C.S. Lewis said, you've got to make a decision. Jesus is either a liar that what he said was just nonsense, he was either a lunatic, that he was just completely out of his mind, or he's Lord. You have to make a decision. By not making the decision, you're making a decision that he's either a liar, because if what he said is true, we would be falling on our faces and going, okay, God, I need you. Because his teaching is not only good and a good idea, if you believe what he said, and then he says that I am the way, the truth, and the light. You have to make a decision. Putting off the decision is a decision in itself. So thirdly, unexpected light is given. Unexpected light is given. So as we look at this dark world that we live in, then we have to ask ourselves the question, where does this darkness come from? And in the very root, we can talk about sin, and and I have taught about sin a lot from this pulpit, but at the very root, the source of evil in the world is ultimately a selfish human heart, which is why I can say with some confidence that politics and social justice and money and all these good ideas and good theories and plans is not going to work because it doesn't actually change the heart of mankind. We need a heart change. There's a battle constantly going on for our heart. But the beautiful thing is, is we as Christians are not actually called to fight it. Because look at this next scripture. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So here's this fun verse that I pointed out to you before. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. So these two verses are linked the reason that, um, so, so there's, there's an answer, for to us a child is born. Why, why is he putting that there? Well, it's as a result of what he's just declared in verse 5. And what he's saying in verse 5 is, there's no need to battle anymore. The fight is finished. It's done. It's over. You're not called to fight this fight anymore for your heart. You're not called to try and get rid of the darkness yourself. That this darkness is not going to be dispelled by your good works and your ability to fix yourself. The darkness is not going to be changed by our ability to find something new and bring that into our lives. The darkness is not going to be dispelled in our community by social justice or politics. 
For to us a child is born. The fight is over. And he uses very kind of harsh language. Every garment rolled in blood. He's saying, look, as a soldier in the fight, you can take off all that you have used to fight and you can burn it. You don't need it anymore. The fight is finished. The light is going to come. The darkness is going to be dispelled. For to us a child is born. And his name is Jesus. And then he carries on. Verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There is an incredible title that the prophet gives God in this. And it's Mighty God. Mighty God. In the original language, that phrase actually literally means God Hero. El Gabor. God Hero. God fights our fight. He is our champion. He is our hero. You are not your own hero. And our culture tells each other constantly, you're so powerful, you're your own hero. You can be your own champion. You can do this. You can do this. You can do this. Just, just, you know, just go for it. You can do anything you set your mind onto. And what it does is it feeds this identity that we are our own answer. And then when, listen, when things go wrong, who do we blame? We blame ourselves. So then shame and guilt increase in our life because actually I've been told my whole life that I'm my own answer. So now that things are going badly, the only person I can blame is myself. And if you've been in church, you may also blame God. But you see, this idea of being a God hero, that Jesus is our God hero, he's our champion, is that he is our answer. So it's freeing. I don't blame myself anymore. Does that mean that I'm kind of saying, oh, nothing's my fault? No, I, part of being a Christian is continually confessing the, the issues and the challenges and sins I have in my life. But the joy is, is the answer to that is not found within me. The answer is found in Jesus. He is the light and it has been freely given. See, religion is man's pursuit of God. The gospel, Christianity, is God's pursuit of man. He's our hero. He's our champion. He will stand in the gap. So let me finish by saying this. Some gifts are really difficult to receive. You know, like for example, if you were given a gym membership by your wife or your husband, that would be a difficult one to receive because you'd be going, well, uh, thanks, thanks honey. Um, is there a reason that you've given me this gym membership and this beautiful diet cookbook. That's great. Uh, are you trying to tell me something? Those are difficult to receive. As beautiful as the gift is, it's kind of communicating you have a problem. You need to go to the gym and you need to stop eating all those cookies. So when you actually get to the place in life where you are so desperate for help and somebody comes along and says, I can help you in this, it's actually humbling to say, yeah, I need help. And this is why Christianity is one of the most beautiful, simple beliefs, and yet one of the hardest. It's because Christianity starts with an understanding that you need help. It's a lack of faith in yourself that is the beginning of understanding and realization that you need Jesus. And as a culture, we are bombarded with the message that you can do it. 
And yet as a heart, please listen to me, we're bombarded with the message that I can do it, yet my heart says I can't. My mind might go, yeah, you can, but my heart deep down inside knows, no, actually, I can't. And then there's this tension and guilt and shame sit in between. I can't do it. Everybody's telling me I should and can, and I feel like I can, I feel like I should, but I can't. I seem to always fail. And in between the middle, Jesus stands and says, I can take this guilt and shame. I can put it on the cross. It's over in the corner. And that guilt and shame can die with me. And you can feel that freedom and that joy and that light. And you can walk in the light, the scripture says, as he is in the light. And yet somehow we kind of go, no, I'm so convinced I can do it. Yet year by year, and soon some of you will be in your 40s. Some of you are wishing that you're still in your 40s. Some of you have been in your 60s and 70s and 80s. And if you don't actually bow before Jesus and say, I can't do this, I need your help, then you will be continually doing that outrunning. But the good news is, is it is a gift as symbolized in that beautiful picture of a manger in those filthy cloths. It's the Son of God who gave up everything to come and live the life that we are desperate to live and then die the death that every one of us deserves to die because of the sin and the shame in our lives. He says, just come and receive this. So I finish where I began. I said, in many ways, all I have to do is give you the answer to the things that we already know are going on in our lives. And then we celebrate light because we're recognizing there is darkness. And we love light because deep down inside we know that there is darkness. And so my heart as a pastor and as a friend, and maybe I've never talked to you before, the most loving thing I can do is to tell you the truth. And sometimes truth hurts. It's a gift that's hard to receive. And so as we come to the end and we, we, we sing our song in just a second and we take up our offering... I need you to understand that the the most glorious gift that you could receive this Christmas is to actually pray, to ask Jesus to forgive you, to repent and say, God, I got this wrong, and just sins that might come into your mind, you just confess them. And you recognize that He is Lord, and He is the gift, and He is the one that will change your life. And then a whole different adventure starts. So I'm going to pray for you in a second and we are going to take up our offering as part of our, um, our kind of routine, if you like, as, as, as a Christian church. And those of you who call South at home, we encourage you to, to give and we love that. But our main focus right now is to actually close our eyes and to consider and to maybe thank Jesus for this unexpected light that he gives to us every, Every time we close our eyes and we just focus upon him, we're just reminded of how incredible the gift is. Let's pray.